0: Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. On April 22, 1519, Hernan Cortez and his army landed on the Yucatan Peninsula. Coming with his army were 16 horses, and with the subsequent Aztec conquest, the horse returned to continental North America. April 22, 1519 marks the 500th anniversary of the horse's reintroduction to mainland North America. Previously, the ancestral horse had been wiped out thousands of years ago. To commemorate this anniversary, we have this three-part podcast series with Deb Bennett, who is a leading authority on the horse's migration in North America and equine anatomy. In this first episode, Dr. Bennett will talk about Columbus's introduction of the horse in 1493, bringing the horse back to North America and the Caribbean. Before we begin with Dr. Bennett, We'll hear from our sponsor, Castle Plastics.
1: Castle Plastics is a fifth-generation, family-owned and operated injection molding manufacturing business. The year 2020 marks the celebration of our 100th anniversary. For over 30 years now, we have dedicated our production capabilities to the equine industry with our vast assortment of superior hoof pads. We take pride in both the innovation and quality of all the products that we have developed and introduced to
0: the market over the years, as well as the fact that each and every item that leaves our facility is manufactured in-house in the USA. Castle pads currently are used
1: globally by the majority of all hoof care professionals. Contact us at 1-800-9-CASTLE or visit us online at castleplastics.com for product and supplier information. He didn't, he comes here in 1492, that's the centenary year, you know, the year where we celebrate the 500th or the 200th anniversary, whatever it is. But 1492 was an exploratory mission only. And although he quote unquote, discovered the new world in that year, there were no horses on his boats on that trip. And many Americans don't even know that Columbus went back home to reload, because then he could say to Queen Isabella, who had underwritten the cost of the expedition, out of her personal purse, because Ferdinand, her husband, the king, wasn't all that enthused about this guy. But Isabella kind of was a forward-thinking lady, and so she was the one who was his patroness. So he goes back to Spain, and he says, yeah, there really is, if you sail west, If you sail east, you come out in the west. (laughs) If you sail across the Atlantic, you really don't fall off the edge of a flat earth. You go around the curve and bang on, you run into some land at the other end of your trip. And he brought back evidence that this was so in the form of a few captives, people, and also certain uh, products or plants or... uh, of the like foodstuffs and other plants of the new world that no one had ever seen in Europe before, of course, because they don't grow in Europe. So she believed him and then gave him another slug of money. And then, and Ferdinand finally believed him too and was quick to figure out that this was going to have big economic significance for Spain because the the custom was that if you were the putative discoverer and you planted your flag there, you owned the territory, unless somebody could fight it out of you. <laughs> unless the natives could defend themselves, which they couldn't. You were the new owner of a vast amount of land, and this is worth money. And particularly, they were after gold. And they were very, very concerned. that They were obsessed with it. <laughs> Yeah. And of course landing in the Caribbean is probably not the best gold mining area on earth, but how were they to know that? So that's what they were looking for. Okay. But they they would take land and they would take slaves and they would take all anything that was worth anything. So he brings back on his second voyage a number of horses. And what he brings, the way this worked was Ferdinand they advertised for men who would be brave enough to make this expedition into the unknown. There was a pretty good chance that you would not survive this or you didn't know if you would. On the other hand, if it panned, you could come up a lot better than you could ever hope to have come out by staying in Europe. So the intrepid uh, crew members <laughs> um, signed on And the king gave them an allowance. Each man got an allowance, which he could spend at his own discretion uh, to supply himself. So some of the men were wealthy in and of themselves and brought things like their own personal slave, in other words, a valet, or a guy to help them that was attached only to them, or certain goods or you know, armor, better quality armor or weapons. But they were all given an allowance to go buy a horse. And every single one of them, (laughs) with a a couple of exceptions, brought the crappiest horse they could buy (laughs) that was still standing on four legs because it was cheaper and they, they considered the animal disposable. I mean, they didn't figure the horse was even going to make it, and that, and with good reason, because uh, the, sh- the death rate in shipping horses on the old wooden ships was uh, over 50%.
0: Now, were they, were they expecting just you know, not only the death rate, but were they just pocketing the extra cash?
1: Of course they were. Right. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're covering their butts no matter which angle you took. They were protecting themselves. And because if, if the expedition failed or they, they hit a storm and they turned around, they'd have some money when they got back to Spain. I mean, that's how they're figuring it. So, <laughs> so but they, so they arrived to the new world with the worst horses imaginable and indeed they did turn out the first couple of batches did turn out to be completely disposable because they all died I mean they died after either on the ship or after arrival
0: How were they shipped? In a plane
1: and there are actual pictures of this that are contemporary on the upper deck of the ship on the open deck they would have wooden frames somewhat like a like a stocks and it, uh, and from the upper corners of the frame there would hang chains and then there was a canvas belly sling and the horse would be brought into the open box or the stock and then they would sling the, the canvas under his belly and hook it up on the other side. And this was to allow them to deal with the, with the rolling of the ship, also to keep them in place because they're cross-tied in this thing so they can't really fall overboard or roll out of it or lose their feet but in another sense many of them did lose their feet because as you know if you sling a horse for any period of time the next the sequel will be founder and so many of them arrived at the new world with what you might say very sore feet and almost unridably lame some of them were able to recover uh, after having been on shore for a while, uh, so for example, at a little bit later period in, a 15, uh, in 1513, you have Cortez's invasion of Mexico, and when they come ashore at Cozumel, uh, Bernal Diaz records who uh, Bernal Diaz was uh, one of Cortez's captains. And who later wrote a memoir of his of his adventures during this you know the conquest of Mexico because he survived it and later became the governor of Cuba. But Bernal Diaz attests that a lot of the horses came ashore dead lame, and they had to ride them immediately because the Indians were already aware that they were going to need to drive these guys away down to the beach, with already armed and yelling at them and shooting arrows at them. And they were able, but nonetheless, they were able to win this battle on lame horses because the Indians, the Aztecs, had never seen a horse, so it was terrifying to them, and they certainly had never seen a man-shape on top of a horse. Indeed, the, the Aztecs initially believed, as did most other, from reports, that's what most of the other Native peoples thought at first, was that the horse man was itself a new kind of animal, that they could could come apart. And they also, some of them thought they were supernatural and couldn't be killed. So the Aztec chieftains who were smarter and realized what the real deal was, made an effort in every battle to chop the dead horse's bodies up and ship the parts or have them taken by courier to every local village so that they could have proof that this was killable that they that the horse was not a supernatural animal and could be killed
0: we're definitely going to talk about bernal and uh, uh, cortez but so on that second voyage for columbus he arrives so right there is that first instance for thousands of years that the horse returns to north america were those those natives were they completely like the same th- same thing. Completely aghast about what they're seeing, and
1: apparently, but we don't have the records from the Caribbean as good as we have from Mexico,
0: okay. because
1: they're all dead. Because what what else did Columbus bring with him besides horses? Smallpox, and yeah. smallpox probably killed more of the native. You know, if you look at if you look at the the uh, the registries, the, the the existing registries for acknowledged Native American tribes and the the numbers in the tribe. You don't start to get, well, every tribe that was in Manhattan is gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the story about the chief selling Manhattan to the Dutch for the, the string of beads or something. They're gone, and all the East Coast tribes, there were many, many peoples that are simply not there anymore because they caught smallpox from the incoming colonists or conquerors, whatever you want to call them. And uh, whereas Europeans had some immunity to this disease because it had been among them for thousands of years, but not Native Americans. And of course, the Native Americans had their revenge. (laughs) Because so far as the data shows, um, apparently syphilis was a North American disease, and of course, a lot of these sailor boys were pretty horny by the time they arrived in the new world, and saw nothing wrong with taking the first native girl they could get a hold of, and so there was a lot. There was a lot. There was already, um, you know, um, it's not exactly marriage, but it was um, coupling between. Europeans and Native Americans, resulting in lots of babies. So that, and that's also something that's coming out in DNA studies now, with people asking about their DNA composition. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are finding out they have stuff in their background they never imagined, and it, and of course they are because we are a mixed people from day one.
0: So as Columbus arrives, you know, and then we have the subsequent uh, two other voyages by him. We're starting to get more, and I'd imagine better quality Spanish horses. What what are the blood stocks you yeah, are seeing? It, evo- it evolved, okay. Because
1: as as they got rooted, as they start, they started to build forts, they they enslaved um, the, the people that did not uh, die of smallpox. They tried to force them to farm for them. They tried to force them to forage for them, and fairly successfully. And they, they made false alliances. They were slimy as far as their political dealings. And it lied to the natives all the time. And the natives did their best to, to, uh, to retaliate, in, sometimes in kind, sometimes savagely. But the Europeans were uh, at least equally savage. So it's a two-way street there. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I am, I'm at some pains to be fair about this. It's not that the Europeans were, are to be looked at as completely at fault. They had their attitude and their reasons for doing what they did. And the Native Americans were not always just uh, the innocent victims either. Al- although in the, in the end, they got the short end of the stick, I will have to agree. Yeah. But uh, so as the Europeans got more established, and began to increase in number. More ships came, bringing more men, and finally women. As that as they then started to turn it into a colony and not just a conquering expedition, there came the opportunity to actually breed horses. And so, for about the first century after Columbus's arrival, they can the king. Continues after Ferdinand uh, retires and then dies, in comes Charles V, Carlos Cinco, okay, from the cigar package, okay? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, so he takes over the kingship as a, as a teenage boy when he acceded to the throne, as being uh, the nearest relative of Ferdinand. And he turned out to be a pretty good king. And later became Holy Roman Emperor, so because he had the Habsburg, uh, his mother was a Habsburg, so he had some rights uh, to territory in the Central Europe, like Austria. So he's an important guy, and he's got the money, and he's got the schmarts. So he continues to grant them, because the king had to give them every little thing. And he also had to, you had to get permission from the king to go conquer a new territory. Because if you, if you happen to win out on this, you would then be the governor of that territory. And the king needed to know that you were his man, you know? So you got a license to go conquer from the king. And of course the king's acting blind because he's never been to the new world and many of many of the guys that went to the wanted to conquer a new chunk of territory were also acting blind because they knew nothing about geography or how big of an area it might actually be so the king was giving licenses to land that had not even been mapped (laughs) and in some cases this amounted to enormous amounts of land which it turned out to be ridiculous you know and unworkable but in any case, as this all began to happen, obviously there is a great need. Every every conquering expedition had to have not only riding horses, but it had to have pack animals too, and they also had to be granted pigs and cows, so they could have their salt pork, and they would and and sheep, so they would take these the livestock with them in trains. When the, when the whatever conquering army set out from whatever city. And (laughs) so, yeah, there, there were, the, the king continued to allow the exportation of horses. And I will have to say that I believe that the quality did get better for a little while. However, the horse having returned to the place of its actual origin not the Caribbean, but the North American continent, okay, the mainland. When the horse hits the mainland, he reoccupies an ecological niche because the, the lifespan of a niche is far greater than 10,000 years. So the niche is just hanging around waiting for him to come back. So, the, you know, the buffaloes that that the horse used to graze next to or didn't happen to go extinct. but. So the horse comes back in and says, oh yeah, I remember this. And the grass looks up at the horse and says, yes, I remember you. There was a population explosion of horses, unbelievable, unbelievable, in both South and North America. And this gives rise ultimately to what we now call mustangs, and that's, that's, a you know, there's more parts to that story too. And so what did they do? By the king's orders. They, every time they land on an uninhabited island, they are under orders to release two cows, a bull and a cow, and a sow and a boar. And especially the pigs, absolutely turn the native flora completely inside out. Because what comes in with a pig, when you bring a pig, is the poop of the pig. The pig is full of poop when it gets off the boat. And when it poops, it plants seeds of plants that don't belong on the island it's been dropped on. It brings seeds in its gut that are from wherever, whatever other island that pig grew up on or maybe even from Europe. And what there is not one Caribbean island that has its entire or even most today of its original flora. They're all second-growth, altered and sometimes because like in Bermuda they would they completely log the place off and turn it into sugarcane plantations during the colonial period. So of course it has it's nothing like it was but on other islands which were not that were for example mountainous places, uh, even there only in the remote parts of the backcountry upland backcountry like in Puerto Rico, uh, do you start getting what is resembles the flora that was there before Columbus's arrival. So the impact of this, of the conquerors, of the Europeans, on every aspect, it isn't just horses, but in making these alterations, they also make the new land, the new world land, even in the Caribbean, more suitable for raising horses than it would have been had it not been altered. Because you know, Jeremy, if you look at the fossil record, there is a certain distribution of the species Equus cabalus on the globe prior to its domestication. So now I'm speaking of that time which was before 10,000 years ago. If you look, and I've published this map, in fact that was part of my graduate work. Back when I was at, at KU and I worked with world-renowned zogeographer uh, named Robert S. Hoffman, who was my, one of my teachers. So Bob and I did, labored <laughs> for years getting these maps exactly right. And what we were pursuing was the whole record of horse remains over the globe and what emerges emerges from this is that there is not one single record of equus caballus okay now you got to be careful to realize what you're talking about equus caballus is just one species there are many many species of other species of fossil horses but of the one that survives the one that comes down to us in the present is equus caballus and there is not one single record of that species from anywhere south of 35 degrees north latitude. They are not tropical. There is no tropical record of horses. Hmm. <laughs> so, and then, and then when they get introduced into South America, it's the other way around, of course, because you know, the other half of the globe. And so what happens there is, that the Bacuales, which is their term for Mustangs, Bacual being being a a South American Indian language, it's pidgin or a corruption of Caballo, Caballo, and the Indian heard Bacualo. <laughs> so that's what they call them. They call them Bacuales. The Bacuales mm. don't range north past that same latitude most Level either. The only exceptions to this is you can get populations at altitude because altitude equates to latitude. If you go up in a mountain, it's cooler. So you can have a high mountain in like New Mexico, where at the near the top of the mountain, the climatic conditions are similar to what they would be in, the, say, Nebraska from someplace much farther north. But at a lower elevation. So, what I'm what but what I'm emphasizing here is the Caribbean is no place for horses. Florida is a horrible place to keep horses. <laughs> they absolutely and why do they get anhydrosis? That's why they don't get anhydrosis idiopathically, by chance or by you know magic. They don't get anhydr- they don't get no sweat disease for any internal reason. They get it, because they are being forced, by conditions of domestication, to live and work in a place where they do not belong. And in the sense that their physiology can't handle the climate. They're just simply not able to adapt to that, or at least some individuals are not. Some are better at it. So if we were to take the whole horse show industry in Wellington, and replace all the thoroughbreds and warm bloods that are down there in the Arabs or whatever else they are and take those all out of there, quarter horses, take them away and replace them with Venezuelan ganeros, which are the horses that for the last 500 years have adapted by death, which is to say natural selection, to conditions in the swamplands of equatorial Venezuela and Ecuador they would be fine, (laughs) those horses don't get anhydrosis because all the ones in that population over the last 500 years that got anhydrosis did not survive to reproduce. So the survivors who are the ancestors of the modern population are those that were not susceptible to that problem. But that's not how we breed domestic horses in North America, is it?
0: No, no longer. So, getting back to, to the early expeditions, and, and as you said, you're having the more people come, they're coming to be permanent colonies rather than expeditions, uh, right. then we get to 1513 and you know, do we view that as more of the, the first mainland landing in Panama?
1: Yes, Panama, actually they were there by 1509 is if you look at Balboa discovering the Pacific, he actually walked the last several miles <laughs> because it was it was uh, difficult, it was thick jungle, and they uh, he and a crew pushed their way through to get their first vision of the Pacific. But they did have horses in Panama, and then, then comes Mexico, and then you get a whole plethora after Mexico. Uh, they go from there to Guatemala and Honduras, and Nicaragua and Costa Rica, and then finally Peru, and then by ship in the 1540s, there like the Mendoza comes into Argentina, and that's the beginning of the criollos down there. The mainland is a, a better place to be bringing in horses yeah. and to be breeding them. Panama is not a very good place because <laughs> no. it's equatorial again. But once you get up to Mexico. You're you're getting close to uh, to pretty good horse horse territory, and especially Sonora, northern Mexico, Mexico City, and north of Mexico City, is definitely horse country, and was changed by the by the conquistadores into uh, haciendas, you know haciendas that were the operations that were largely dependent on horses and that raised horses. In other words, they're ranches.
0: And we'll end this episode with Hernan Cortez and the horse on the threshold of continental North America. We'll discuss the horse in Mexico and its role in Cortez's conquest of the Aztecs with Dr. Deb Bennett in the next episode. I'd like to thank Dr. Deb Bennett and our sponsor, Castle Plastics, for helping us bring this podcast to you. Thank you.